Hey everyone, great to be uh, to be here with you. My name is Jacob. If we haven't met before, great to see some new faces. Um, as is every single week, to see people coming into this space and experiencing community and, and exploring questions of faith. It's so so good to have you here. I wanted to just echo. Um, my gratitude to some of that, it was just so nice hearing um, some of the ways that God has been at work in this church this year. And God is obviously always at work, but it does feel like this year has been one in which God's active presence has been just particularly evident in the way that he's been at work in our, in our communities, in growing people, in even bringing people to faith for the first time. Um, that's been really, really cool to see. But I also just want to say as well, just I'm just so, so thankful for you guys as a church, this is such an encouraging church to be a part of. I think I can say this on behalf of all the staff and, and Jez, who's on long service leave now, probably having a pina colada on a beach somewhere, but he would, he would echo this if he was here, that, um, that each and every week doing church with you guys uh, here on a Sunday and throughout the week is a complete and utter joy. Every now and then you do hear from other pastors around the place, of, you know, confiding that, like, in some ways their church can exhaust them and, and, and wear them down, etc. Um, and that is just, I can genuinely say, never our experience of City Light. This, is, this church is a delight, it is life-giving, it is, um, it is a place we want to be. I'm sure Jez will probably be here on some Sundays even though he doesn't have to be. Um, when I, we took some, I took paternity leave earlier this year, it was, such, it was such a nice thing just to come and be a part of this church as a community, um, which is so, so genuine. So thank you so much particularly everyone who's been serving, everyone who's just been here and loving and pouring into this church in all the different ways that people do. We really, really appreciate it. We're finishing off today in our last normal week of church for the year, this I Am series that Anna was speaking about, in which each week we've been taking one statement of Jesus that begins with I Am, which, in which he reveals an aspect of his identity, and we look at how that aspect of who Jesus is intersects with our experience of him and, and uh, and how understanding who Jesus is enables us to experience the fullness of life and joy that he has to offer. And what we're looking at today in this final claim of Jesus really taps into one of, I think, the most significant questions that we can ask, which is the question, how do people change? How can a person genuinely transform for the better? And there's obviously an appetite in our world for change and personal development. Like if any time you go to a bookshop and you look down the list, particularly, I guess, the best-selling non-fiction books, at any time there will always be a smattering on that list of, of self-help books, most of which are broadly kind of broken up into two categories. There's the self-help books about how to, how to change yourself to become more wealthy and experience like business success, which are predominantly but not exclusively like marketed towards men. And there's a collection of books at any given time on like the Christmas best-selling list of, of how to transform your body, how to, how to diet, how to quit sugar, whatever it's going to be, that again is predominantly but not exclusively marketed towards women. But I was listening to a podcast this week, and it was a secular podcast, but the conversation really was centered around a lamenting that comparatively little attention goes to the questions of how do we change on a moral landscape? How do we actually become not just more wealthy people, more successful people, better looking people, but just better people? How do we change from the inside? Because what our world, I think almost no one would argue desperately needs, is an influx of people that have the means and the desire to make things better. We live in a world of chronic loneliness, of increasing inequality of wealth. It's a time that is marked by growing division and tribalism and even war. 
And the world needs people who you could describe as selfless, loving, caring, people of courage and kindness who will be committed to alleviating misery and just simply improving the experience of all of those around them. But despite the fact that I think most people would agree that our world needs more kind people, more loving people, more caring people, more than it needs more toned people or more rich people, we typically don't actually, as a society, have great answers to the questions of how can someone truly transform? How do you take someone who is selfish and turn them into someone who is selfless? How do you take someone who is impatient and cause them to become patient? How can an ungrateful person become grateful? How can a cowardly person become brave? And today, this teaching of Jesus that we're looking at is him really answering that question of how can someone become all that they really could be? What is the means to a life of fruitful change and growth? And Jesus' answer is, I am. What Jesus is going to show us today in these words is it's through connection to Jesus that people can genuinely and truly transform to be a people of a fruitful blessing for the world around them. So we're going to jump into it. For Jesus' last I am statement, the context of that within the book of John is Jesus is meeting with his disciples around a dinner table in his final night before being arrested and trialed and crucified. And if this scene feels somewhat familiar to you, it's probably because actually if you were here at the beginning of the year, we spent four weeks in January looking at this, these chapters in the book of John, looking at this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples just before his arrest and his crucifixion. And the theme of this discussion, if you can remember that far back, was Jesus was preparing his disciples for a life of discipleship and following him and growth when Jesus would no longer be physically with them. He's seeking to ask the question, how can they continue to press on and to grow and to enjoy Jesus and everything he has to offer when Jesus is no longer by their side? And it's in the midst of this conversation around this table that Jesus gives his final I am statement that he's been making throughout his ministry over many years throughout the book of John. And he says this in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now let's take a bit of a look at this metaphor because this is where we're going to be camping out our entire morning this morning. Jesus is calling himself a vine. And that's not to be confused with like a, a jungle Tarzan swinging vine, but this is the vine of a vineyard or vineyard if you're a bit posh and want to be la-di-da about it. It's a, it's a pretty random thing though just to start calling yourself out of the blue. If you're at a dinner table and someone says, I am the vine, you don't really necessarily know straight away what they're referring to, do you? But this actually isn't a new metaphor. This isn't Jesus coming up with a new idea or a new way of describing himself or describing someone. But he's tapping into a metaphor that would have been really well known by these first century Jewish people he was eating with. The idea of, of, of vines, grapes, vineyards, wine, it, it's a huge amount of the metaphors that make up the Old Testament of how the people of God are described. The idea of wine... And the grapes that, that can make wine being, uh, I guess, the most desirable thing isn't particularly new. Wine has been a symbol of, of pleasure, luxury, enjoyment for a long time. I don't know how long, but, but longer than the Bible. 
which is weird to think about, to actually think about who figured this out. Like, every time I think about wine, I get stuck on this, because presumably someone had some grapes, because grapes are just natural and they're good, but someone would have left some rotting for a while in the sun, came across this kind of mushy mess, and rather than tipping into the bin, just said, I'm going to give this a go, and ate it and pushed through, and realized there's something a little bit enjoyable in that, let's perfect it. Kind of, he's a, a weirdo on the level of the first person, who experimented with drinking milk from a cow. But, but like that, it's genius, it caught on. And so, as you do, ever since that first person, wherever in the world they were, people have been intentionally going out, planting grapevines to cultivate and to produce, to make wine, this, this thoroughly just enjoyable and, and status of pleasure and of happiness. People have been wanting to grow vines. And the idea of, of, a, of a vineyard throughout the Old Testament again and again and again, I found about like 17 references to this through the week, is that the peop- is often being used to describe the people of God. That like a vineyard, the people of God are, are a living thing that is cultivated for a purpose. The purpose of bearing good and pleasing fruit. Fruits of righteousness and generosity and justice. But throughout the Old Testament and the Bible, every single time that the people of Israel are referred to as a vine, it's in the context of disappointment and failure. The idea that comes out again and again is they were meant to be a vine that produces good and pleasing fruit, but they haven't. I want to show an example of this. This is from Isaiah chapter 5. This is written a few hundred years before Jesus, where the prophet Isaiah is lamenting the spiritual condition of the people that he lived in. And this is what he said. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. You catch the the image that is painted there, and this this clear picture of, of a gardener just waiting with anticipation for the years it has taken for his work to pay off and these vines to grow and produce this crop and to be met with disappointment. That God looks on his people and says, despite everything being given to them that, could, that they would need in order to be a people that is a blessing and is good and kind and merciful. Instead, they yield evil and war and injustice. And as much as this is a picture of these Old Testament nations of Israel and Judah, I think it's also a really fitting just picture of the human condition. That humanity as a whole and us as a collection of individuals if we are honest, recognize that we have failed to live up to what would be hoped and intended of us as image bearers of God. That rather than these good grapes which delight the gardener, we again and again turn out of ourselves and our our souls bad fruit of, of evil. 
Can you relate to this as, a, as a potentially a fitting description of yourself? Even, to, even not living up to your own standards of the things that you hold out to be just good in any person, of being loving and kind and caring and courageous and forgiving. We come up short again and again. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus makes his claim when he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. What he's saying in this initial statement is where everyone else has failed where everyone else has failed to live up to this ideal of bearing good fruit, I will succeed. I am the means of life. I am the true vine. I am the one who's going to yield the fruit. And we need to be anchored in this reality before we go on any further into the passage because it's going to guard us against, I think, our inclination when we read so much of what Jesus says and so much of the Bible to recognize that first and foremost, Jesus isn't saying to us today, you need to go and be better vines. You need to try again. You failed and failed again. Try harder to be a better vine. What he's saying, though, is I am the good vine. I am the true vine. I am the one who lives up to God's ideal. We, on the other hand, as his people, are not vines. We are something else. So let's go a bit deeper into the metaphor. From verse 1 again, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. So that's the distinction. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. He's getting quite botanical on us. I've got a diagram, oh, it's the end of the year, like it, I want to make things exciting, so I've got a diagram of a, of a vine, yeah, thank you. But it's probably more complicated, it's got all the different descriptions, we just need two. There's the tr they call it a trunk, that's what Jesus calls the vine, he's saying that he is the, the thing that's connected to the ground, and we are the branches, the things that kind of shoot off the vine. Is that kind of clear? We can get rid of the diagram, I thought I'd just throw that in there for today, to make it a little bit, to make something already really simple, even simpler. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the way to think about our connection to him is the same way of thinking through the connection of, of branches to the vine. And what Jesus is saying in this is that there is some fruit that can be had. And you notice in people when you, when you, when you see someone who is actually living a life where they're just genuinely transformed in, as a person of love and of kindness and of mercy, that, that, it is, that it is something desirable. The fruit that Jesus is referring to here, it's an, again, it's a metaphor that comes up again and again. It's fleshed out really helpfully in another part of the Bible, Galatians 5 from verse 22, where Paul describes fruit in this way. He says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These, the, these are the qualities that I think most of us would actually aspire to have within ourselves. And these are the qualities that when you do see them in another person, it impacts you positively for the better. They're, they're ways of describing how someone is internally, but all of these descriptions that come out in that verse are not just things that remain internal. They, they, they pour outward and affect those around. They are visible. They are impacting and so Jesus is saying, you guys have got the means to bear this kind of fruit, but only if you remain connected to the vine. 
The vine is the source of life. If you go to a, a, a vineyard and cut off a branch and take it home, you haven't just like tapped into the key to have like eternal grapes in your house, right? It, it's just going to die. It's just going to waste away. But a branch, when it is attached to the vine, has the means of creating this kind of goodness. And it's worth noting what Jesus is saying here, because it is significant, that the way that Jesus intends to fill our world with these good things, that in a world that is suffering a chronic deprivation of relationships, of beauty, of love, and of joy and of truth, is to fill the world with a people who are powered by the life of the vine flowing through them. Bearing the sweet fruit of a transformed life. That is what Jesus is saying. That is what Jesus is saying about how people change. And this ability to stay connected to the source of life and bear fruit is important. It clarifies what then Jesus says in those verses about the cutting and the pruning. I don't know if as we were reading through that, you saw those lines about Jesus taking branches away and cutting. You thought, that actually sounds a little bit ominous. But what they show is that God deeply cares about fruitfulness in his people. Look at, look at that verse again in verse 2, where Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I think there's sometimes this idea that just comes up again and again and again in the Christian world, and it has this throughout like thousands of years of history, where this idea comes about that starts in a good place, and it starts with saying something like, look, God loves us even though we are flawed. God is gracious to us even when we are sinners. God doesn't ask us to become perfect in order to know him. And those good, true, biblical ideas kind of get twisted a little bit to the conclusion of saying, therefore, it doesn't matter how I live. That Christianity is just something I can believe. It's like a little badge I can wear, a way of identifying myself. It's a cross around my neck, but it doesn't need to affect my life beyond that because God will just forgive me anyway. But we see here that Jesus actually does care about a transformed life. In fact, a transformed life, or bearing fruit, to use his words, is inseparable from being connected to the source of life. So Jesus says, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That there is pointing out there is a way to be a person that clearly has no life, that bears no lasting fruit. And the question is, would be, I guess, as you look at those verses, is who is Jesus referring to here? Because that can feel a bit of a scary idea to think, am I the branch that Jesus is going to take away, that's going to just prove to be dead? But what this is not saying is that there are true disciples of Jesus, people who really do know him and are connected to him, who, through some failing or some mistake or some error or some sin, are punished by being cast away from Jesus. And we know that's not the case from a whole bunch of parts of the Bible, but we don't have to go very far because we know it from this passage because Jesus says that anyone who is connected to the vine will bear fruit. It's not possible to know Jesus and to know him intimately and have a relationship with him and not be someone who is slowly but surely transformed. But what Jesus is speaking about, though, is the possibility of people who are being in contact with Jesus but not truly connected to him who share proximity with him, but are not one with him. And you don't have to look too far to see this. In, in this passage, Jesus is sitting around a table with his 12 disciples, one of whom is Judas, who has no love for Jesus whatsoever and who is on the verge of going out and betraying him. 
Someone who's been able to walk with him, be around him, but has no life in him. And the warning in these words are to those who are experiencing some degree of superficial discipleship. Maybe in proximity to Jesus, in proximity to church, but not having his lifeblood through, flow through them from the inside out. But God is not indifferent about that reality. God is not looking for people who identify as Christians. He is looking for people who are connected to the vine and bear fruit and who change. And an indicator that you may not, in fact, be really connected to Jesus, may not really have that life in him, is if you are not in any way changing. If you're not experiencing this organic, over time, trajectory towards good and towards mercy and towards grace. Because connection to the source of life is necessary. Because without that, all you can really do is keep up appearances, and keeping up appearances is exhausting. Because real life needs this connection. It's kind of like I imagine some of you at the moment probably have a, like a living Christmas tree in your home at the moment. And like, you know, those, those guys aren't cheap, so, so it must be nice. But we've got a plastic one this year. We've had the like, living ones in the past. We're on the plastic. But if you've got the living one at the moment, it's not really living. Sorry to break it to you. It was. It was living. And you went to the shop and you bought it. You brought it home and you probably covered it with lights. You've got the star. And that tree maybe still at the moment, is looking the best it's ever looked. But it's kind of a weird thing because you kind of know in the back of your mind that as much as you get that enjoyment and that nostalgia and that nice smell out of it at the moment, you know in the back of your mind that in just a few weeks' time, it's going in the trash. Or you're going to miss the free council cleanup and you'll just shove it down the side of your house or something in a pile somewhere. But we know that looking alive is not the same as being alive. The moment that tree is removed from the source of life, it is just keeping up appearances. Jesus says that dead branches will be cut away. He says that no fruit means no source of life. And that is a challenge. He's intending his hearers to consider and think about, is that me? To look for that fruit, to look for that evidence, and if not, to to realize what the priority should be. The priority is to, to connect to that vine. To, to know Jesus and have him in you in such a way that he changes your life. Because God cares about fruit. And you see that in, the, in those branches that he cuts away, but you see it as well in those who do bear fruit. His next line is, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And this is an interesting one to dwell on. Jesus says that if you are someone who is genuinely connected to Jesus as the source of your life, that God will take an active role in shaping you to flourish into, com- into complete fruitfulness. I don't know if you've done much pruning before of anything. I've done a lot, but in a very short amount of time. I actually worked on a pomegranate farm for two weeks, which doesn't sound like that would make me an expert, but I pruned 8,000 trees in that time. And I know that's not like a guess. That's the actual number because it was 25 cents per tree, so I was counting. That was small. But pruning, right, it can be pretty brutal. You go along to a tree, and it looks really healthy. It's got leaves, it's got branches, it's looking so, so, so good. And you take your clippers, and you just, you just kind of massacre it. You take a, probably 90% of it you chop off. You're doing it intentionally. And what you're left with is this kind of butchered plant with just a couple of branches off it. And it's a, it's a weird dynamic, because it's actually by doing this that you set the plant up 
to just grow even better. That in a year's time, you come back to the plant that you've pruned and it's got even more branches, it's got even more leaves, got even more fruit. And this is what Jesus says that God does to his people. He intervenes in such a way to create the conditions for more growth and more fruit. And I think the metaphor of having things cut away is probably pretty fitting though because sometimes God's pruning can feel painful. It can feel like he's just taking something away or leaving us worse off. But the goal is fruitfulness. Do you know that God is more concerned about shaping you into a fruitful, growing person than you are about yourself? Sometimes I think you can, maybe you feel this as well, you can look at yourself and just think, ah, I wish I was just going better. I wish I was growing more. I wish I was seeing more change in myself. I really wish I was just more loving than I am. I would, like, I would have liked to have changed more over this past year or more joyful or more patient. And as though we care about this, but God doesn't. But what we see is that actually God, more than anyone, cares about us growing into the people that we were created to be. And he's so concerned about that that he promises to bring us to that end, to be working and shaping and molding his people, that we would be a people who bear fruit. God wants us to be a people who bear fruit. And as you look over those lines, you might just then sort of think, well, I'd really better get things into gear. I really better start bearing some fruit, get serious about this. You know, I don't want to be cut off. I want to be connected to the vine. I've got to go and bear fruit. But I think the, the amazing thing about this passage and about this reality is that that would be a backwards way of thinking. Because does the branch get attached to the vine because it bears fruit? Or does the branch bear fruit because it's attached to the vine? There is a place for us to a, a direct our focus or our intentionality. It is not just to try and, through sheer willpower, to grow more fruit, to change, to be more, more the people we know we should be. But instead, it's to focus on being connected to the vine, to abiding in Jesus. And this is where he ends his teaching on the vine. This is how he sums it up. This is what he wants people to take home as the message from what he's been saying in some of his very last words before his death. He says this from verses 8 to verse 11. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus answered the question of how is it that we can see real change, real transformation? How is it that we can be a people that is bearing this good fruit? It's not just to try harder to stay connected, but it's to remain in the life you've already been given. To stay camped out in the love that you've received. And it's crazy that this love that Jesus speaks about. He says that as much as, as the Father has loved him, he has loved us. As much as God loved Jesus, Jesus loves us. I don't know how you quantify that much love. As much as God loved Jesus, which is obviously more than we've loved anything, so we don't really have a reference point for that. As much as God loves Jesus, Jesus loves us. And Jesus just says, remain in that love. Camp out in it. 
Soak in it. Let it wash over you. Know it. Sit in it. That love is powerful. That love is life-changing. Often, we just default as Christians to being the people that need to do more, do better, try harder. Get some new method. Get some new willpower. Just get into it again. It's a new year coming soon. Resolve to do better. But Jesus brings it back again and again and again to sit in who you already are and what you already have. That we might just simply stay connected to Jesus, to sit in this love that he has for us, to know it and have that love organically change us. That we would live obediently to him, to listen to him, to find joy in him. And I think this is a really good place for us to kind of wrap up our year before we get into Christmas and summer. To remember this, that we only have life through being connected to the one who is life. We bear fruit because of Jesus living inside us. The thing we are called to is not to work but to abide. The love that we have is not earned but it is freely given. And our ambition should be single and central just to abide in that love. And so as we get to wrapping up the year, I just think it can be so easy this time of year just to kind of hustle your way to the finish line, get through the craziness of Christmas, then just kind of veg out for a couple of days and then get straight back stuck into the new year and just go hard again. But that would be to miss an opportunity that we've got here. An opportunity to just stop and slow down and reflect for a little bit before we get into the new year. To ask the question, am I abiding? Am I finding my life and being transformed both inwardly and outwardly by Jesus working inside me? And to consider that and think on it and work out what's going on there for you, to look inside and see what is there. And then to prioritize connection with him. Jesus' words, are, they're active. it's an active instruction to abide in him, to remain in him, to make him your regular place of nourishment. I'm really not much of a gardener. I've got a, a, just a small handful of plants at home. My general approach to gardening is to let the plants do the work. They know what they're doing, just kind of stay out of the way. But I do know that there's a few times a year, and it's really often in the spring coming into summer, where a little bit of extra work on, you, on my part can make a big difference. You get a little bit of fertilizer in as the weather starts getting warm, start paying attention to watering them a little bit more, get the weeds out that have kind of built up over the winter, get the conditions right, and you'll just get to enjoy a lot of growth in that season. And I just wonder, as, as, as we move into to summer as a church, not that like spiritual growth is, is linked to the seasons of that, but our holiday kind of is and that kind of thing, to think about the time that we've got ahead of us and consider, just, is there a little bit of gardening of the soul that is required? Can you get the conditions right? Can you just look at what's going on, do a bit of weeding, do a bit of just kind of making sure that you know, the, the food is there and available for your soul? that you would be growing over this time. Like you might already have like a beach novel picked out for the summer, but maybe it's to, to, to good to have a bit of a think about. Is there a part of the Bible you want to be reflecting on over the next, I guess, five or so weeks to the end of January? Is there, is there some like Christian podcasts that are just going to be really uplifting and feeding for your soul that you can just load onto your phone so when you're having your Boxing Day nap or, or going for some extra exercise over that week that... You can just be listening to something which will be feeding your soul. Maybe it's being intentional to block out a couple of hours between now and the new year just to, just to sit down and even with a pen and paper reflect on what God has been doing in your life, 
what he's been wanting to speak to you, what maybe you haven't heard him speaking to you because of all the busyness, and just to reflect on some thoughts and things you're grateful for, the things that God might be pushing you towards. Or to take the summer to focus on prayer. Over January, we're going to be doing a four-week series on prayer, just looking at four different psalms over each of those four weeks. And maybe it's to say, look, my prayer life's gone a bit, a bit not so good over this year, but I'm just going to, I'm going to lean into that and try to re- restart a habit of prayer and being nourished by having that open communication with God. And maybe it's even just now over this next week and even today to start praying that God would be the one who does this work in you. That God the gardener would be giving growth and bearing fruit in your life. I'm actually just going to finish our time now by, by praying a prayer that's written by um, an author, Richard Foster. I'm going to have it on the screen because as I read it, maybe you can be praying it in your own, in your own head and your own mind. And even as we have a little break in a minute, as we, as we start prepare to sing together again, just to be looking over these lines and just see if there are any aspects of this that, that just resonate with you, that connect with you, that is a prayer that you want to be asking God for over this time. So I'm just going to pray this prayer to finish now. It's called, um, the prayer is called The Gardener of My Soul. Spirit of the living God, be the gardener of my soul. For so long I have been waiting, silent and still, experiencing a winter of the soul. But now in the strong name of Jesus Christ, I dare to ask, clear away the dead growth of the past, break up the hard clods of custom and routine, stir in the rich compost of vision and challenge, bury deep in my soul the implanted word, cultivate and water and tend my heart, until new life buds and opens and flowers. Amen.